Welcome to the Slam Radio Podcast, featuring TMA with Nick Hamilton, Extra Dose. This is TMA with Nick Hamilton. Wake your goat mouth ass up. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what this is coming down through the audience. What looked like he just came out of the basement. TMA with Nick Hamilton. You know what I'm saying? Thank you because now. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM, Slap Radio 145. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be on this planet. Hope everybody had a great weekend and a great start to a brand new week. A lot to get into on this episode. Oh, yes, the NFL playoffs are in full swing. Some people are moving on. Some people are sitting on the couch. We'll get into that as well as I have some special guests coming on talking about the state of women's basketball and why aren't there more women on the sidelines preferably black women on the sidelines in the WNBA and the collegiate ranks we'll get into that as well as the state of black coaches in the NFL we get into the moments brunch so we got a whole lot of stuff that's jam-packed so you definitely don't want to miss out at all make sure you keep it locked right here keep your seats warm Get your, get your feet up, get you a cold beer, whatever it is you're going to do, because it's going to be a jam-packed show, y'all. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at Nick Hamilton LA, as well as on Twitter at Nick Hamilton 213 Subscribe to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash TV. You can also catch me at Nightcast Media, your gateway to sports, culture, entertainment, tech, and community, all rolled into one at nightcastmedia.com. All right, y'all, look. I'm going to sit up here and set the record straight. I've covered the NFL for many moons now. And I've seen some things come. I've seen some things go. I've seen some things that should have gone. I've seen some things that should have been added. One thing in particular has never gotten stale. And it's and an ongoing topic that continues to get overlooked is the state of black coaches in the NFL. What I mean by that is currently as we stand right now, there is one black coach in the National Football League, and that's Mike Tomlin, who for 15 seasons has never had a losing record, by the way. One NFL coach that happens to be black in a league that is 70 plus percent black. That is appalling. And the reason why I say it's appalling is because of this. You fired two black coaches, the head coach with the Houston Texans, the head coach with the Miami Dolphins, known as Brian Flores, which for the life of me, I cannot understand why you would fire Brian Flores, who has won the last eight out of his nine games, swept his mentor and Bill Belichick in the New England Patriots and still put together a culture in three years to try to turn that team around in the right direction. And Stephen Ross and company decided to part ways, or should I say, let me not even sugarcoat it. You fired Brian Flores. What the hell for? My question is this, and I've seen reports about Jacksonville Jaguars, who also have an open coaching vacancy, deciding to give Bill O'Brien an interview. What the hell has Bill O'Brien done? That's going to change the fact of what he the debacle that he created in Houston, because part of the reason why Deshaun Watson wanted out in the first place is because Bill O'Brien sold off all of his weapons, meaning DeAndre Hopkins. 
He let J.J. Watt go. You let all these other guys that he needed to build a team in the right direction go. So that's why Deshaun Watson was so adamant in leaving Houston and still adamant to this day, despite the accusations. He's still adamant to this day because of one individual that you gave too much power to. But you would never give that much power, or would you, to a black head coach? And the thing about it that gets me is that how in the world, and I know there's about eight, seven, eight vacancies, and I'm sure some of those vacancies will be filled by black coaches. But the fact that we're still talking about not having adequate opportunities for black coaches and coordinators in the National Football League, one of the problems is there are no black general managers, uh, or at least enough black general managers, to make certain decisions. And the problem is with not hiring upper management black folks to be in positions to make these decisions because you have zero black owners in the National Football League and have been for quite some time. And that's another issue. But when I talk about the executives, when I talk about the black executives or lack thereof, I believe there's only two black executives in the National Football League, if I'm not mistaken. Two? The fact that I could count on one hand how many black executives there are in a football league, again, that is 70 plus percent black is absolutely absurd to me. And it should not take black people to hire black people. If you talk about, oh, we want qualified candidates or we want people that have been in the coaching trees. Well, guess what? You can't get any more qualified than the experience that you have. And don't tell me, oh, they've never interviewed for a job. Well, how the hell can they interview for a job if you don't give them an opportunity to interview so they know what to expect moving forward, even if they don't get that particular head coaching job? At least they know what to expect moving forward as they move up the chain to get an opportunity. Eric B. Enemy should have gotten an opportunity. Um, Todd Bowles should have gotten another opportunity by now. As much as you recycle all these head coaches that don't, that don't look like black people, Raheem Moore should have got another opportunity. Beyond being a coordinator. I tell you what, if Jacksonville was smart, which I know Shy Khan is not that bright when it comes to, or does he not care about the future of his franchise in Jacksonville because it could just be a money ploy. But if I was Jacksonville, Byron Leftwich would be my head candidate. The guy played for the Jacksonville Jaguars, gave his heart and soul to that team before he moved on. That would be a prime candidate for a head coaching job with the Jacksonville Jaguars. You have a young quarterback in Trevor Lawrence. You can rebuild a culture, and you can actually change the culture in Jacksonville, starting with that locker room, because Lord knows the debacle that Urban Meyer had created in that locker room. There's no reason in hell that Urban Meyer should even sniff the draws of another NFL circle, the way he completely destroyed that team and tried to break the spirits of those young men in that locker room, and preferably almost destroyed Trevor Lawrence. But we won't talk about that. So Byron Leftwich would be my candidate if Shia Khan and company were smart to make that move. And then also, too, I'm going to say this. I know Raheem Morris. I, I spoke with Raheem Morris early in the week about this. But I also see it's not just so much talking to the black coordinators and the, and the black position coaches because that's not it's not about that. It's got to be a collective effort. White, black, Latino, whoever is in these positions. You guys got to band together and say, look, we have a growing issue that continues to be, remain out of hand and is spiraling out of control. And if other coaches don't say anything, whether you're white, black or otherwise, you are just as guilty to perpetuate this nonsense and this racism that continues to go through the body of the, of the league. Because not allowing 
coaches, and I'm talking about this, there's a lot of qualified black coaches and coordinators out there that deserve opportunities to grace the sidelines and can lead a group of men. We've seen this time and time again where you don't think black men are that important or that intelligent to do it. We saw it with the quarterback situation. Dates all the way back from guys like Randall Cunningham to Warren Moon to guys back in, to James Harris back in the 70s with the Los Angeles, then at that time, the Los Angeles Rams. When you replaced him because you didn't think he was qualified enough. Jefferson Street Joe for the Pittsburgh Steelers. When even Terry Bradshaw said, this guy was better than me. And you broke that man's spirit to the point he turned to drugs. So we're going to call a spade a spade. Let's call it. But I also had an opportunity because I wanted to get a different perspective. And I had a chance to speak with head coach Sean McVay before the big showdown game between the Rams and the Arizona Cardinals. I pretty much asked him what needs to be done further to ensure that more opportunities for black coaches and minority coaches get that chance. And here's what he had to say. I think it's very important that, you know, to acknowledge that, you know, when I, I feel so fortunate that I'm around great coaches and then a lot of these guys happen to be, uh, you know, African-American, but, you know, really we got great coaches and there's a lot of great coaches, um, you know, that this league has to offer. And I know firsthand from the guys that are on our staff. I mean, and, and, you know, my understanding is a couple of those guys are going to get an opportunity to compete for some of these jobs. Um, but I know, you know, like you look at Raheem Morris and what he's meant to me as a mentor, as somebody. And so um, it is something that you're disappointed. You want to do whatever you can to help, um, you know, have that go in the right direction. But there's a lot of great coaches. Um, and hopefully those guys get an opportunity to compete for some of those jobs uh, that I think some are deserving of, uh, you know, being in those roles. Now, that's fair. And I understand what, what Sean McVay is talking about. And I love the fact that he bigged up Raheem Morris because they have a history that goes back, way, you know, years and years. But it's going to take more coaches that look like Sean McVay to, to, to send the message to upper management. And upper management needs to send that message to owners of the fact that there needs to be more diversity and opportunity for these coaches. And also my other question is, where do the players play in all of this? How much of influence do the players have? Because when I look at it, the players have to play for these coaches, right? The coaches are the leaders pretty much of these men. And how much of the players feel like this is an important issue? That's what I wonder. And I'm not saying that all the players are unanimous and either going for it or not or going against it. I don't know. But that's a question I want to throw out there. Because it seems to me that the players need to start speaking up as well. You can't just rely on the head coaches, upper management, whether it be presidents or GMs and things of that nature. You know, they all have their parts to play to bring the, to bring more attention and awareness to the fact that you need more black coaches and coordinators. Look at Pep Hamilton, for example. What, what, did, you, did you remember what Pep Hamilton did with a, a young man named who was the offensive rookie of the year named Justin Herbert? After Justin Herbert was thrusted into that position in week two, just five minutes before finding out that he was going to start against, the, at that time, the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. And though he didn't win the game, the Chargers did push the Chiefs in overtime and only lost by three. I think it was a 51-yard field goal that pretty much sent the Chiefs home with the win in that game. But Justin Herbert, we've seen the development of Justin Herbert. 
not just from a confidence level, but from a physical and mental standpoint. And we see what he's done even in his second season without Pep Hamilton. And we saw what Pep did in, in, with the Houston Texans in that quarterback situation. Tell me why Pep Hamilton is not an offensive coordinator somewhere. Tell me why Pep Hamilton shouldn't be an offensive coordinator somewhere. And maybe he will. But as we stand right now, he's not. And there's several other coordinators that are like Pep Hamilton out there in various positions, whether it be linebacker coaches, defensive coordinators, offensive coordinators. There needs to be an influx of opportunity. I mean, you look at Mike McCarthy, the trash job that he's done. Why the hell wouldn't you fire Mark McCar- Mike McCarthy after one year? I guarantee you Mike McCarthy's key, key card is going to work for the year two. How come the Dallas Cowboys wouldn't fire Mike McCarthy and hire Brian Flores? Because I don't recall the Dallas Cowboys ever having a black head coach. Do you? Because I sure as hell don't. So you tell me how many open, how many vacancies there should that, that, that there are for black head coaches. And don't be taking these cellar dweller teams either. Because, see, unlike their, their white counterparts, most black coaches, when they take these cellar dweller teams, are expected to walk on water and crap ice cream. And if they don't do it in two years, and guess what? You're done which is completely unfair and out of touch with reality. But you'll give some lame duck coach four or five years to try to turn something around they never do. They don't even make the, don't even make the wild card of a playoff. But you'll keep them on board. But you won't give somebody that looks like me an opportunity who's earned that opportunity, who's put in years and years of work for that opportunity. I don't understand it. You got to get better, NFL. You talk about having diversity and equality and all this other stuff, and you putting out PSAs during the 2020 season, then be people of your word. And, again, I love covering the NFL. I, I love covering the NFL. I love watching games every week. So oh, this is not – this is more of speaking truth to power. And I enjoy watching the NFL. The NFL is one of the most incredible sports. It's the number one sport in the country for a reason. And it's going to continue to be that way. But you got to make you got to adjust with the times, man. You have got to adjust with the times because it makes no sense. And the NFL is not the only league that needs to adjust. The NBA is another league that, quote unquote, seems to be progressive. But how many upper management and, and presidents and GMs that are black in that profession? Major League Baseball, another one. The WNBA. The NHL. All these leagues need to step their game up. All right, y'all, I got to bring in my man, Jake Warner, a.k.a. Big Brother Jake. What's going on, man? What's good with it, Nick? How you doing, brother? Oh, I'm good now. I had to get out of deliver that sermon off my chest, man. Should have kept your word, Brian. Should have kept your word. <laughs> People ain't keeping their words trying to hire these black coaches, man. Ah, so frustrating to see you, man. It really is. I'm feeling hey, you. We got to keep. But you know what? As my job and my responsibility as I hold this microphone, I'm I'm gonna have to speak on issues that need to be spoken on. And nobody's gonna have the have the gall enough to to ask these coaches and these general managers and presidents the questions, then I'm gonna do it. Hold the feet to the fire, baby. That's what we do on this show, man. You know that. Hello. (laughs) So what you got cook what you got cooking, man? Let me fire up the grill. Let's go. Let's hit it. All right. Current Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson stands accused of assaulting 24 women. However, one of his accusers apparently is speaking out directly and anonymously to Watson's girlfriend, Jillian A. 
Was the accuser fair or out of pocket for pending a public letter to Watson's girlfriend? See, that's a tough one because I, I, you know, again, I've never, fortunately, I've never been assaulted in that way. And I'm never going to want to say that women are wrong for speaking out and speaking their truth as far as what they've experienced or what they felt or whatever the situation was. I understand why the young lady did it. Mm-hmm. I understand, you know, because she's trying to say, hey, you know, women need to stick together. She's trying to send out a warning shot. Yeah. I don't know if it was the actual right thing to do publicly, especially because she doesn't know Deshaun Watson's girlfriend directly. I understand she wanted to get the message out, but I don't know publicly uh, because I, I always felt like whatever Deshaun Watson and his girlfriend are dealing with, we don't know what they're dealing with behind right. the scenes. Right. We don't even know if they're on good terms or not with all of these accusations floating around and there's some strong you know there's some smoke there is some fire <laughs> yeah uh, when it comes to this but you know she said basically the young lady that wrote this this letter said basically i've walked in your shoes before i love someone for years whom i found charming unbelievable talented though not an nfl quarterback sweet at times who i thought would fit perfectly into my life plans and be my life partner um she went on to say he was a man who should have had and could have everything, but he was damaged beyond belief in his choices and actions, sabotaged his life. And when it was finally over, I felt like I could breathe again. Mm. End quote. Mm. I don't know, man. I can't say if she was wrong. I can't say she was right. But think about it is, will his girlfriend listen is the point. And I'm, I'm sure she not only just sent that letter out publicly to his girlfriend, but maybe to some other women that may be going through some of the similar situations that this accuser uh, has experienced uh, as she alleged with Deshaun Watson. Um, and maybe she's also speaking out to other women. So if she's speaking out to other women, in, including Deshaun Watson's girlfriend, and I totally understand that. And, you know, like I said, hopefully the truth will come out. And if Deshaun Watson is guilty of all of these heinous acts that these women are accusing him of, then he should pay the penalty. He should never touch another football again, not, at least not for a long time. Uh, but if these women aren't being truthful and forthcoming and the evidence proves that they're not being truthful, then Deshaun Watson should be able to play NFL football again. He should sue the pants off of every last one of them. And the problem with that is even if they are lying, I'm not saying they are or they aren't. So please be clear when I say this. I'm not saying that the, these young ladies aren't telling the truth. I'm not saying that they are telling the truth. What I'm simply saying is if the evidence comes out to show that they're not telling the truth and they're just using this for a, a financial gain or trying to smear his name or whatever, then they should be accused of perjury and they should pay the penalty for perjury. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Uh, on to the next item on the menu. Uh, with all the attention at one point of the Super Bowl possibly moving out of L.A., many wondered if that would even happen. Now that we know Super, Super Bowl 56 will be played at SoFi Stadium, uh, there are some reports that the halftime show could be axed due to COVID concerns. How confident are you that the show will remain as scheduled? Oh, I'm definitely confident. Until I hear otherwise, I'm definitely confident. I mean, I think it's it's something to be aware of as far as because of the, the surges that we've been seeing across the country, right. especially in the state of California. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of understand where they're coming from, but they better not ask that damn halftime show. You know how long I t- it's been since I've seen Dr. Dre, Snoop, <laughs> Eminem, Mary J. Blige, and special guests, including Kendrick Lamar, on stage all at one time? Man, please. 
And I know a couple special guests that are coming out. I ain't going to say who it is, but you definitely want to make sure that halftime show goes on as scheduled because everybody's going to be pleasantly pleased, I think, with the halftime show. Oh, yeah. NBC's still advertising as is. So, you know, I, I think it's still going to go off without a hitch, man. It's L.A. too. It's, there's no way they cancel that concert. There's no, the, the halftime show. No way. No way at all. West. West Coast to the casket drop, the man. Casket better, drop. We on the we on the west side. Woo, yeah, there'll be some mad people at that one. And last time, including on the, yours truly. Oh, same, same, bro. Because I don't watch the halftime show unless it was Prince. You know, I like Bruno Mars. It was cool, but like Prince, he, man, he killed it in his halftime show. But yeah, we we need that West Coast representation out here. You know, uh, last on the menu. Speaking of West Coast, <laughs> the Lakers find themselves once again around five hundred. Who's mostly to blame for the mediocrity of this team? Two na- I got two names for you. Frank Vogel, <laughs> Russell Westbrick. Oh. You, sir. <laughs> Mr. Apple Turnover. You know, I-, I really want this guy to succeed, man. He's back home playing. It's just not the right fit, though, man. It's really not the right fit. I, I know he wants to be home. And-, and his style of play, it just isn't. It's not fitting for the Lakers, man. I hate to see it. Makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm not for it. Let me ask you this before we go to break. Yeah. Best halftime shows. I said Prince, Beyonce, Michael Jackson, and I think the good doctor may be able to sneak in the top three of all time half good great halftime shows. If if it pulls if it gets pulled off without a hitch. I think the good doctor may be able to do that. You know, I, I'm with you. I, I, I thought Prince's halftime show was my favorite of all time. By far, Prince killed that that set. Um, but if this goes off without a hitch, and it will, it will be top three. Because look at all the people you got coming on, man. There's no way it's not top three of all time. Yeah. I mean, I love Beyonce's halftime show, especially yeah, her good. being in the band. Yeah. She represented for the Black Panther Party. Yeah. But her, she's always been an incredible performer to me, so I, yeah. I'm never surprised. Michael Jackson's was cool, though. Michael yeah, Jackson's absolutely was it was, yes. yes. Um, but yeah, I think I think Dr. Dre might might have, might have a hot one in him. Oh, I he think for off. sure. I think for sure he will. Oh, absolutely. All right, y'all, coming up on the other side of the break, I have some special guests coming in to discuss the state of head coaches and women head coaches, especially on the sidelines and the professional and the collegiate ranks. We'll get into that and why their project is so special and why they decided to make it now to bring it to the forefront, as well as we'll get into the NFL playoff picture, who's going, who's staying on the couch, all that and more here on TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. Stay tuned. Welcome back to TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at Nick Hamilton LA and on Twitter at Nick Hamilton 213. Now, before the break, I explained to you all about a really serious topic that continues to be perpetuated through our society and even through the sports world as far as the lack of having proper coaching and black coaches and black coordinators having the opportunity to be grace the sidelines and lead players, whether it be men or women in the sport, in the various sports, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, hockey, and what have you. Recently, I came across, and this is the magic of social media, because I came across uh, two dynamic young ladies uh, who really have a passion to, to address a serious issue not NFL-related, but basketball-related, whether it be in the WNBA or Division One basketball, 
And that's the lack of women coaches, primarily the lack of black women head coaches gracing the sidelines of D1 schools. And to help me break down and understand the severity of this issue, I have Dr. A.J. Keaton. She is the assistant professor at the University of Louisville for diversity leadership. I also, Dr. Nefertiti Walker. She is also the associate professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, she's also about observing the culture, advocating equality and justice. Ladies, thank you so much for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Absolutely happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. Now, one thing that grabbed my attention is that you all are working on a project uh, to bring awareness to this growing problem of lack of having women coaches and primarily black women coaches, whether it be on the D1 level or the WNBA level, something that has been talked about, I, I believe, in the last 12 months it has intensified. What brought awareness to you all as far as saying you all, this is the time to bring this project to the forefront and get some understanding and disseminate that information to the people so they understand as far as the, 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 the severity and trying to fix this problem or is there a fix to this problem moving forward? Yeah, I can start. I mean, it's definitely a fix. I'll start with that, right? Like this is this isn't something um, that's insurmountable. This is something that we can verily fix in the industry. We just have to first begin to care about it and to do some research on it. But I'll start by just talking about how we got into this project. Um, it really the idea came from both a combination of the research that Dr. Keaton and I do, but also it came from me actually talking with black women who have been my coaches and writing what is a recommendation for them to get opportunities after they've been in the game longer than I've been playing, some of them, and them still being unable to get opportunities. So for instance, um, without giving the exact coach, I have a coach who played in the Olympics, who played um, big time SEC basketball, one of the greatest players, Hall of Famer, and she's been unable to get a head coaching opportunity. And it's not because of her skill set, it's not because of her experience, right? There's other factors that are at play. So I just wanted to dive deeper into this. I mean, I have a passion for basketball. Both Dr. Keaton and I haven't played basketball at a high level. This is something that we're, you know, ingrained to this culture. So we wanted to dive a little bit deeper to find out why do we see these numbers increasing as far as participation of black women in sport, but we don't see really any movement at the highest of levels. No, Dr. Keaton. I was just going to add to that. Uh, you know, when Neff brought this to my, the project to my attention is something that we would collaborative, collaboratively work on. I was like, of course, um, just thinking about my recruiting experience, having a black woman head coach, you know, that was a rarity to me. And that was 2010, 2009. And the fact that that's still happening for many black female athletes, uh, particularly in basketball, I was watching games yesterday. And at one point on many channels, uh, when South Carolina was playing yesterday against Arkansas, it was, 90% black women playing. And so you can't just say, you know, we play the sport, but we have no interest in maybe going into the coaching career. That disconnect is a pipeline issue, the pipeline issue from assistant coach to head coach. And so, you know, awareness, you, you mentioned that earlier, um, many people are aware. I think there's a lack of wanting to dive and get ourselves uncomfortable with the structural dynamics. Who's making these leadership decisions? Why are they making these decisions? Because it's an interpretive process. These coaches um, in our interviews so far, very much so aware of what's hindering them in terms of barriers. And we really want to bolster that and really be um, the individuals that can share that stories across um, our goal, you know, 100 Black women coaches. 
Now you bring up an interesting point, Dr. Keaton, uh, when you mentioned about just the recruitment aspect and how 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 important is that? Do you not just to you, but uh, young ladies that you guys had a chance to speak with? How important is that uh, as far as having someone that looks like you that can resonate with you as far as just culturally being able to connect with you beyond just the basketball court? I know Neth has a powerful story to share that I've heard a couple of times, so I'll let her decide if she wants to share that one. Um, but for me, you know, it, it matters, particularly if you're thinking about that juncture, that 18 to 22, that traditional college age, there's a lot of a lot of things happening, particularly with identities, with academics, with making the transition into adulthood. And so for me, I was fortunate to have a black woman assistant coach who really did that brokering, um, that cultural brokering that was able to explain why I need a hair appointment that's all day on Saturday, why I need the schedule in advance. It wasn't just because AJ wanted to be different. It was I needed to take care of my needs. And so driving to Denver is an hour drive in the snow. You know, that hair appointment needs to be on time, even if the hairstylist is not. You know, there's just these cultural dynamics that are at play. And even in our interviews, now that I'm on this lens of it, I'm now thinking, you know, is that brokering fair? It's additional labor that these black women coaches are having to do because there is this mass of black women athletes on their teams. And so in one sense, we can see it as as an athlete. I saw it as very positive. I needed that support. But I'm also, and not at any fault of my own, also putting this additional labor on this coach. How does that play into her career trajectory and all the other things that she's balancing? So that's just my lens. Oh, Dr. Walker, I definitely got to hear that story. Yeah, you know what? I don't even know which one because I feel like there are so many powerful. So, so AJ, I don't even know which story you're you're referring to. I'm thinking of the one where you uh, had to explain why you're you're wrapping your hair. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's and so that story in particular has happened many times. So I'll give you just an example of that one in particular. And I'm going to go back to a, a time where I was playing um, D1 basketball um, at Georgia Tech, and there was this discussion around wearing head wraps on the bus. And this this doesn't this isn't unique to Georgia Tech. It happened when I was at Stetson. It happened um, at every point in my life, except in high school, because in high school I was coached by majority black coaches. But the issue is that coaches, white coaches who aren't um, haven't necessarily put in the work to understand black culture, they see head wraps as something that's unprofessional, right? So black women, before we go to bed at night, before we go to sleep on a bus, we're wrapping our hair, right? Like we have hairstyles, we're trying to protect our hair, we're trying to keep our styles tight, we're wrapping our head with a headscarf. And I've had coaches over the years who have not understood that. I've had white women coaches actually, um, who haven't understood that. And they pushed against that and called it unprofessional and made policies around when you can wear these headscarves and when you can't wear them. And the reality is, if you're taking a bus trip for three hours and you're napping before, there is no reason why you can't wear a headscarf while you're on the bus, right? Like, take it off maybe when you walk off the bus or maybe not, right? Like, it's just a head wrap. Maybe don't take it off. Maybe go into Subway as a team wearing that head wrap. So AJ mentioned it and said it, you know, perfectly. There are all these cultural factors that um, black coaches are able to negotiate with their players um, in ways that allow them to feel comfortable, to not have to think about these extra burdens and focus on the game in ways that, again, these become um, in a lot of ways fault lines that white coaches are tripping over and not able to negotiate with their players in the same way that black coaches can. Now, do you feel that is racist or just culturally clueless? Well, 
There is both, right? I think initially it's culturally clueless to not understand why a black woman would want to wrap her hair before taking a nap for two or three hours, right? But I think it becomes racist when you tie that headscarf to unprofessionalism. Um, you know, like there are all there are people wearing all sorts of hats and other headgears. Like, why can't you wear a headscarf, right? So to assume that wearing that is unprofessional begins to border the line of racist, in my opinion. Yeah, you may you make up a great point because we also uh, witnessed over the the summer uh, with the Olympics how they they did not allow black women to wear swim caps in order to yeah. protect their hair as they were competing in the swimming competitions. Um, and so it's, it's great that you mentioned that, because when you look and you also talked about just having the opportunity for black coaches, when I look at black coaches, especially in the collegiate ranks, obviously Don Staley comes to mind, did a phenomenal job with the United States uh, women's uh, team, won a gold medal. Um, Adia Barnes, um, I even look at Tina Thompson, at the University of Virginia, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there's several other uh, uh, black coaches. I mean, C. Vivian Stringer obviously comes to mind. Um, when you look at some of the coaches that, to me, I've, I felt like she didn't get her just due when you think about the Pat Summits and the Genos of the world. Um, and I always make sure I, I big up see, you know, Coach Vivian Stringer because I think what she did was remarkable. She turned the culture uh, and really just put a, a, a team on the map and really showed that black women, given the opportunity, can uh, move forward. You look at Lisa Leslie, what she's done in the big three uh, in that league, uh, being a champion and, and being a winner. So my question to you all is what can be done to not only just advocate but to put pressure on some of these universities and even some of these WNBA teams to get more black women on the sidelines especially giving them the opportunity to coach and to showcase their skill sets i'll start with you dr keaton yeah you know i just want to bring attention to the fact that with our participants so far, I can tell you exactly what they want to happen. They want more individuals in the room that looks like them, understanding that there's so many dynamics to the games of women basketball that it's not just wins and losses. I'm particularly focusing on the collegiate level because that's where my uh, expertise is, that they have so much to bring to universities, to athletic departments, that they want individuals, particularly at the senior level, administrative level, who can really look at them holistically in the same way that we're supposed to be looking at collegiate athletics. I think where they're coming from is that the expectations um, just aren't fair. Uh, the expectations that we would have of a white woman coach, of a white male coach does not align for a black woman coach. The, um, the allow the leniency of how much time do you get to rebuild a program? What program were they taking over? Um, you know, personally as a former division one athletes, some programs, and I came from one before I transferred, you know, they can be messy. So what situation are you putting these black women head coaches and assistant coaches into? Um, one participant shared with me um, in this preliminary state that we're in that as a, an assistant head coach, or excuse me, as an assistant coach, you kind of have to go with whatever your head coach is saying. And so when you fire that head coach, you're assuming that I think like them, that my philosophy in terms of how I would understand the game is the same way. And so are we even looking at those associate assistant head coaches who maybe could take over the team and have that opportunity? And so they're really focused on opportunity and what's that tenure length with the opportunity? And that's where I would challenge senior level administration. That's such a good point, AJ. And if I, if I can piggyback on that a bit, I think, you know, something else that we don't do is we don't necessarily think about 
we don't take an asset approach to thinking about black women in the sport, right? Like we don't think about all the things that black women bring to women's basketball or basketball in general that perhaps other folks can't, right? This cultural competency that we've talked about um, where black women understand the experiences of their black athletes, for instance, understanding that the majority right now at the D1 level of women's basketball players are black athletes. I was talking to one coach the other day, and again, we're just in the preliminary stages of collecting data very early on, but I was talking to a head coach, a black woman who's a head coach, um, and she was talking about the hiring process and how the skills that a lot of these coaches are looking for, head coaches and their video coordinators and their graduate assistants are skills that women's black women's basketball players or any women's basketball players, to be honest, probably haven't had the opportunity to develop. Right. So they're valuing, for instance, a young white male who can um, edit videos, who can do graphic designing over a young black female who understands the game and who can think strategically, technically about the game. And they're overvaluing those skills over the skills that a lot of our former athletes would have. They're not valuing those skills as much as they probably should. So there's bias not only in the actual hiring process, but there's bias in how people are evaluating what should be valued and how much weight should be put on particular types of skills. So if head coaches that are doing the hiring of these video coordinators and assistants are valuing these technical skills over the game itself, that means that it's going to take Black women coaches or athletes who are coming out of playing a lot longer to develop those skill sets because, again, they've been in the gym shooting, right? So essentially they're saying when it comes to a 22-year-old that's entering the profession, we're going to value these learned technical skills over the expertise that you would develop from being an athlete. And I think that in and of itself is discriminatory. Absolutely. Um, one final thing I wanted to ask you, we talked about the players, we talked about the head coaches and obviously the, you two, as far as being in that position at one time, and now you guys are exposing uh, what needs to be done. But should there also be pressure on the chancellors, the presidents and those who are these commissioners of these power five conferences like the Pac-12, the ACC, SEC, uh, Big Ten, when you look at the Big 12 or the Atlantic 10 or, all, you know, all these different conferences, how much pressure or how much emphasis should be placed on them? Because these are people that are in decision making roles. And should there be more people that look like us in those decision making roles? I'll take a stab at that first and then um, pass it over to Neff. But I want to throw another group in there are these search firms. Um Who's on these search firms list? How do these search firms work? I think what Neff was speaking to was brilliant about basketball IQ. How do you evaluate basketball IQ um, if you actually don't have basketball IQ yourself? And so who's a part of these firms and a part of these committees um, to me is something that I really want to bring attention to as well. Also with chancellors, presidents and those in the higher ranks. I'll let Neff go ahead and go. Yeah, no, AJ, I was leaning on you because this is right in your wheelhouse of, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion at the collegiate level. But I think I think you're right. At the end of the day, uh, universities, the chancellors, obviously the presidents are responsible for the lack of diversity at their institutions. Um, AJ pointed out an excellent point earlier when she spoke to the fact that these women contribute to the overall culture of the institution, not just to athletics. Um, I think something else that we should point out is that when you think about, you know, hiring of black coaches in women's basketball, um, where else would it make the most sense? Where else would we have the most 
player talent pool to hire from other than women's basketball, right? So, I mean, if we're not doing a good job in women's basketball, then it, it, it's dire for the rest of college athletics. And it has significant implications for what's gonna, what the rest of college athletics will look like. Because again, if we can't hire black women in women's basketball, then it's gonna be very difficult to hire black women elsewhere, um, considering the amount of participants that we have. So um, I think it's, everyone's to blame, right? It's the culture, it's not one person in particular, it's the chancellors, it's the folks that, you know, are in positions like mine as vice chancellor for DEI, it's athletic directors, um, every, you know, outside stakeholders, community members can put pressure on institutions to, to ensure that they're giving black women a fair shot at these positions. Dr. Walker, Dr. Keaton, I have about 90 seconds. So when can we expect this project? Because I can't wait to watch the finished product of what you guys, your intense research and just all the people you're talking to. And is there any other people that you guys plan on talking to as a part of this, this project? You can expect at least to have preliminary results and for us to sort of go out and do sort of, we hope a media frenzy around March Madness. So March Madness, we're gonna be dropping the results of this data, interviews, context, all of that fun stuff. And you know, we'll carry this over into the WNBA as well. And with our, uh, I know we're about to close out, but we just want to add um, that we will protect anonymity. Um, you know, we uphold that as academics, as scholars, those that participate in this study. We're never going to pinpoint uh, between 2002 and 2010 and, and kind of give that context to them, um, to these coaches and, and their experiences. We, we want to protect them at all costs. And so, you know, we hope that there's trust in us just being a part of the community, being former athletes, but also trust in us um, as scholars who really just, again, we, there is awareness here. Now we want to really get at how we can change these structural and systemic barriers. Absolutely. Well, phenomenal work. I would love to hear from people like Candace Parker, Jewel Lloyd, uh, Asia Wilson, people that are actually thriving, that came from the collegiate ranks, thrived there, and now they're thriving in the WNBA. Um, and so many countless others that have been in the NBA, uh, even Sue Bird, people like that, people like Diana Taurasi. I think this it's also important not just to get the black perspective, but a universal perspective um, on this growing issue, because I think it affects us all at the end of the day. Yes, it affects black people, black women in particular, but I think it affects the game of basketball and the sport of basketball. So I commend uh, Dr. Keaton, Dr. Walker. Uh, if there's anything that I can I can help with or assist with, I'm definitely on board. Um, even if it's just showing a promotion. Um, I'm definitely on board because I think this is a very serious topic. Uh, we, we know what's going on, as I mentioned, with the NFL, obviously NBA, uh, several other sporting leagues, um, and this is no different. So I'd like to thank you, Dr. Keaton, Dr. Walker, for your time. I uh, really greatly appreciate it, and I look forward to continuing the ongoing uh, discussions about this as we move forward. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Coming up on the other side of the break, we'll get into the NFL playoffs. That's right. Some people are staying home. Some people are moving on. Who's getting closer to raising that Lombardi trophy? We'll get into that and more on the other side of the break. You're checking out TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. Stay tuned. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. Final segment of the show, the NFL playoffs. Some people are going to be on their couches. Some are going to go ahead and book flights and move on. Some are going to prepare to host games. Ben Roethlisberger, we have possibly seen the last time he's going to throw a football in the NFL stadium. Even though the Kansas City Chiefs started off slow, they made sure at Arrowhead they handled their business. And Patrick Mahomes looked like the Patrick Mahomes that we expected him to look like. 
and be able to throw those great dime passes and be able to defeat the Pittsburgh Steelers and send Ben Roethlisberger home 42 to 21. You know, he's had Ben Roethlisberger's had a, a really great career. I mean, people could say what they want. I know he hasn't looked that great in the last couple of years. But Ben Roethlisberger has definitely been a stable when you think about the Pittsburgh Steelers, especially under center. This past Saturday, the Raiders lost to the Bengals, which we knew, and I said that. I said even though the, the, the Raiders played a hell of a game against the Chargers in overtime, which probably one of the best classics we've seen in a long time, now they have to go on the road at Cincinnati, who's been playing pretty well with Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow. And you cannot blame the refs, even though the refereeing was – terrible it was absolutely horrible but you can't necessarily blame the refs because you can't put yourself in those positions to lose games and the raiders did just that as Derek carr drove down the field and threw a pick joe burrow looked absolutely phenomenal in his debut and in his playoff debut along with jamar chase and you know joe burrow finished 24 of 34 for 244 yards two tds even though he was sacked twice he still got the ball off and to me, Jamar Chase, nine receptions, 116 yards. This kid is something special. And when I look at this kid, and everybody wanted to doubt him when he first got into the league. Everybody wanted to doubt him. Everybody said, oh, he wasn't, you know, capturing the offense. He wasn't understanding the playbook. And everybody wanted to throw him away and, and put him on the side of the road. And he kept working. He kept grinding. And you knew he had the talent because what we saw at LSU was no fluke. He just needed to acclimate himself into the NFL style of play and get himself ready for that type of offense. And he absolutely did. He's definitely, in my book, the AFC Offensive Rookie of the Year, as he should be. And if he's not, it's a damn travesty because this kid balled out. This kid is special. He's dynamic. And I think the Cincinnati Bengals are trending in the right direction when it comes to how they're going to build their franchise out long term. This is not Marvin Lewis's Bengals. This is a new Cincinnati Bengals team not just physicality, but mentally. And this is a team that's going to be around for a good while. And the league is in good hands. I believe the league is in good hands. When you think about Joe Burrow, when you think about Justin Herbert, you know Justin Herbert didn't make the playoffs once again this year, but this is a kid that's special. And you have a lot of other quarterbacks, but these two especially, to me, are going to lead the league in the right direction. The Bills annihilated the Patriots. Mac Jones is not ready. Mac Jones has flashes, but he's damn sure not ready. Josh Allen is the truth. Josh Allen is big time, and he came through the way he was supposed to come through. And they're going to have a tough test next week at Kansas City. That's going to be an incredible game at Arrowhead. But I think there's a possibility. I don't know, and I'm not going to pick. I'm not going to make any predictions and say, oh, who's going to win? Who's going to lose? I don't know. I just want to see a good game. I want to see a well-officiated game, unlike what I saw with the Cincinnati Bengals and the, and the Las Vegas Raiders. I don't want to see that debacle ever again. And that officiating crew should be fired. And I'm glad they're not going to be able to officiate any other playoff games moving forward because they damn sure didn't deserve it. They should be fired. The key card should no longer work for them as referees in the National Football League because that was absolutely preposterous and appalling to, to, to officiate that type of game. That was ridiculous. But I'm looking forward to the, the divisional round. I mean, the, the Eagles got their behinds kicked. You knew the Bucs were going to kick their behind. They're at the Tampa Bay is at home. But now, thanks to a, a, an incredible Monday night affair by the Los Angeles Rams, who this is probably by far the best I've seen them play 
in all three facets of the game, probably since the last time they played the Arizona Cardinals in Glendale. And the defense set the tone early and often at SoFi Stadium against the Arizona Cardinals. This was Kyler Murray's first playoff appearance, looking for his first win, along with the veteran named Matthew Stafford, who was looking for his first career playoff win. And let me tell you something, Matthew Stafford, after that first drive, looked like the Matthew Stafford we had been anticipating and been wanting to see for a very long time. He threw no interceptions. He did. He only got sacked once for a seven-yard loss. After that, he made he was running. I think he had six, six runs for 22 yards, I believe. The running game was absolutely incredible between Sony Michelle and Cam Akers, who combined for about 113, 114 yards. The wide receiver core, they were able to spread the ball out. They were able to, to get it to Van Jefferson, to OBJ, who captured his very first career playoff reception. And also, too, when you look at this team, even though we know how dynamic Cooper Cup is, you have some guys on this team that can really get the ball and, can, and be able to move the chains. And when you're able, when the Rams are able to spread the ball out, and as they say, spread the wealth, big things happen for this team, as we've seen time and time again throughout the season. And to be able to mix it up like that and throw the Arizona Cardinals defense off kilter, even though they brought back J.J. Watt. And J.J. Watt did not look like the J.J. Watt we were accustomed to seeing. But I tell you what, that, that Los Angeles Rams defense with Von Miller, who sacked Kyler Murray, you look at Aaron Donald, Troy Reader, Leonard Floyd, and the rest of those guys. I mean, even having a guy like Aaron Weddle just on the field to be able to throw the signals and know where to be and know how to, how to get to certain areas. I'm going to tell you something. When these Los Angeles Rams play together, they know how to make moves and make statements in games. And this was no different. I mean, the Rams have scored 21 points before the, the Cardinals were able to get successful first downs. And this is probably the worst I've ever seen the Cardinals play. I know they came in here and Cliff Kingsbury early in the week said, oh, you know what? We're not worried about anything. We're not worried about you know, we're coming in here, we're loose, we're relaxed, there's no pressure. It certainly didn't look like it was no pressure for Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray was pressured all game long. The man was throwing sideways baseball passes. That's how bad it got for the Arizona Cardinals. And now they're going to go home, sit on the couch, and watch the Los Angeles Rams advance against the Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Bucks and Tom Brady. And that's going to be an incredible matchup next Sunday at 12 noon Pacific time. And I'm looking at this team and I'm saying if the Los Angeles Rams, now think about this, if the L.A. Rams could somehow beat the Tampa Bay Bucks, which they did earlier in the season here at SoFi Stadium, and they looked exactly how they looked. They played extremely well in all three phases, special teams, offense, and defense. That's the same way they're going to have to play the Tampa Bay Bucks. And also, too, let's not forget, the Tampa Bay Bucks don't have a, a solid wide receiver outside of Mike Evans, whom you can bump around. They have Gronk at tight end which is the other set of hands that they have. But they really don't have anything else. There's no Antonio Brown. There's no Chris Godwin, who's, who's out for the year. They cut Antonio Brown. And then you also look at the running game. We don't know if Leonard Fournette's going to be available. And that was a, a, a nice-sized part of their running game. So the Rams have the work cut out for them, but the Rams have an obtainable schedule where they can go ahead and beat the Tampa Bay Bucks and get to the NFC Championship. Now, on the other side, Dak Prescott turned into Chris Webber. Because the Dallas Cowboys, once again, to quote my man Stephen A. Smith, are an accident waiting to happen. And they definitely derailed. And this, this Dallas Cowboy train derailed big time on their home turf. Because the San Francisco 49ers came in and established the, established the run. 
They spread the offense and they made sure that they got the job done and make their presence felt. Debo Samuels, let me tell you, that's that kid is special. Debo Samuel is special. But when you look at Jimmy Guapolo, and I know he's not the most popular quarterback in the Bay Area, but he's been playing with an injured thumb. It didn't look like he had any kind of injuries when it came to that type of situation with him getting the ball and driving the ball down the field. Dak Prescott had no excuses. Dallas didn't run the ball. And then how in the hell? Okay, this is not a rookie quarterback we're talking about here. Dak Prescott has been in the league for quite some time. So you know the rules. You know what to expect, especially in, 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 in tight situations like we saw late in the fourth quarter as time was winding down as the Cowboys kind of tried to get back into the game. And you don't hand the ball off to the ref? What bonehead play was that? This is why I said Dak Prescott turned into Chris Webber. Y'all remember what Chris Webber did in the University of Michigan when he called that timeout that they didn't have and cost them the game? That's exactly what Dak Prescott did. Instead of handing the ball to the ref, he wants to go down and put the ball on the ground trying to save time, and time ends up expiring. When you you know the rules clearly state that you're supposed to hand the ball off to the ref and let him spot it or her spot it, whoever the ref may be. And you tricked off an opportunity to tie the game up in the fourth match week overtime to be able to win on your home field. And yes, you went 12-5, and five, but to what avail? This organization is absolute trash. This team is they have some talented pieces, but they cannot put it together. And Mike McCarthy is a horrible coach. Mike McCarthy deserves to be fired. But guess what? I doubt he I doubt he gets fired. I bet you he, he comes back for year number two. Or whatever the hell year it is. This man should be fired. There's no excuse why Mike McCarthy has a job in the National Football League as a head coach. This man is terrible. This man is absolutely insane to think that he's actually a good coach. And the 49ers are going to go ahead to Green Bay. And who knows? Again, we know Green Bay is the number one seed. We know how tough Lambeau is. We know how Aaron Rodgers is a bad man, even with nine toes. The man can still ball and the man can still get the job done no matter what it is. But let me tell you something. The 49ers could be on the same trajectory as the Giants were that year that Eli, when they had to go on the road, and face Green Bay on the road and beat Green Bay in the frozen tundra in, in, in frigid temperatures to get to the Super Bowl. The San Francisco 49ers could easily be on that same trajectory. And wouldn't it be ironic if the 49ers end up winning, the Rams end up beating the Bucks, and now we have 49ers Rams part three at SoFi Stadium for the NFC Championship and the winner moves on to Super Bowl 56 here at SoFi Stadium, wouldn't it be ironic? That's all I'm going to say. Wouldn't it be ironic? I can't wait for next week. Next week, I'm going to be glued on my couch watching all these games because I think the NFL season is so unpredictable like L.A. weather. We don't know who's going to truly win. You can say it, and you, we know what the caliber of, of players that are on these various teams, but any given Sunday, anybody can lose, and it's win or go home. And speaking of going home, it's time for me to get the hell on up out of here. Thank you so much for tuning in to TMA with Nick Hamilton. If you miss any portion of this broadcast, make sure you download and subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio. I can thank everybody at SiriusXM, everybody at Slam Radio and Nightcast Media. Thank you to my elite guest that I had on in segment two. I'd like to thank you all for listening and checking me out. Until next week, make sure you take care, be safe, 
Stay sharp. I'm out. The views and opinions expressed on TMA with Nick Hamilton Extra Dose are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Stam Radio.